And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Dr. Lindsay M. Chervinsky to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Dr. Chervinsky is a presidential historian as well as a columnist at Governing and Washington Monthly. She is the author of The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution, which is now available in paperback from Belknap Press, an imprint of Harvard University Press. Well, Lindsay, before we get started on Washington's cabinet, we've got to kind of understand the concept of cabinets and where they came from. Can you tell us about the cabinet of Great Britain, especially the one in King George III that led up to the American Revolutionary War? Absolutely. Well, the British cabinet emerged in very organic fashion, not unlike the American version. The British government as parliament emerged as a equal or parallel force in the 15th and 16th century into the 17th century as well, and and accrued more authority, there was a privy council. And the privy council was basically a group of the king's preferred ministers that wielded the authority in parliament and were basically responsible for trying to govern what we think of sort of as the 17th century government. So people like the home minister, which dealt with the colonies and domestic affairs, the foreign minister, the minister of finance, and the sort of the key elements of what it meant to have a functioning government. The problem with that, of course, was that once you have a group that starts to become too large, it's actually not a functioning advisory body anymore. And up through at least King George III, if not later, the king or the monarch still actually had a fair amount of authority and made decisions about what policy should look like. So the king started meeting with his preferred advisors in a small room off the privy council chamber, and that small room was called the king's cabinet. Now, this is a funny example of how the English language sometimes does weird tricks on us and and evolves over time, because cabinet was used to mean literally a closet or a small room. And so it was a small space that usually someone would have a private room for prayer or writing or sewing for women or maybe potentially music. And so this king's cabinet is where he would pull his preferred advisors into private sessions. Now, because these were unofficial sessions, everyone knew that a king's cabinet existed and they called it the king's cabinet council, but it wasn't really clear who was on the ins of power, who was on the outs, who had the king's ear. There were certainly no minutes taken. So this was very much an off the books enterprise. Now, eventually the council part of that name became dropped and it just became known as the king's cabinet. And by the time we're talking about the American revolution, so the 1770s, everyone knew that this cabinet existed, including Americans. And Americans began to feel at this point, they would have still considered themselves British citizens. They were colonists, but they considered themselves to mostly be very loyal British subjects. They began to be convinced that the cabinet was not representing their interests and was turning the king against their pleas for assistance. The cabinet was responsible for the legislation that they despised, things like the sugar tax or the stamp tax or the changes in navigation policy. And there was a great deal of turnover in the cabinet, especially under King George III's reign. He didn't have very steady ministers most of the time until William Pitt, the junior, became his prime minister later in his reign. 
But the institution of the king's cabinet was very distrusted and was something that Americans began to feel was the cause of their discontent to the point that when the war first broke out in 1775, the colonists actually referred to the British regulars, the troops that were stationed in places like Boston and the New York City, as Parliament's troops. They weren't the king's troops, they were Parliament's troops. And that really demonstrates where they thought the blame should lie for this conflict. Was there anything in particular that they could put their finger on that proved that it was more of a Parliament thing than King George III in their problems? Well, one of the real differences between the British cabinet, and this is true today as it was back then, and the American version, is that all of the ministers that were in the king's cabinet also had positions in parliament. In fact, the entire Privy Council, the entire cabinet is made up of people who have a seat in parliament. And so there was this sense that they were meeting privately and coming up with these policies, then getting them passed through parliament and duping the king about what the intention of these policies were for. So the king wasn't allowed to see the painful ramifications for the colonists. And because of that sort of shared authority, both as advisors to the king, as well as ministers in parliament, it felt like there was a great deal of corruption. And because these meetings, these conversations were taking place behind closed doors, and there was no written record, Americans were just very distrusting about that lack of responsibility, about that lack of accountability, and the blending of authority in these positions. That transparency piece became really crucial to the formation of the American version and how the Constitution was designed and what the delegates at the Constitutional Convention were really concerned about when they were coming up with their own system. And it's also funny that the origin of the cabinet was this informal set of advisors and that there would be another thing that would crop up just a few years after the formation of the American cabinet. The kitchen cabinet of Andrew Jackson would become essentially a mirror of the king's cabinet back in the day. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's funny because Americans have this fascination with kitchen cabinets and who is the president speaking to, who is the president getting advice from. And that sense that these meetings are taking place sort of outside of official boundaries is one that we've always been very uncomfortable with. And it goes back to, I think, this sense that we just don't really know who has the president's ear. And if it's not someone in office, how do you hold them accountable if they make a bad decision or if they give bad advice? The American national government under the Articles of Confederation wasn't really a paragon of efficiency, was it? (laughs) No. The Articles of Confederation were drafted very much in the context of the Revolutionary War. Really important to remember that the revolution took place and the colonists were tasked, now they styled themselves Americans, were tasked with coming up with a government basically in response to their rebellion against monarchy. So they went pretty far in the other direction. And the states really didn't have much relationship with one another. They had a close relationship prior to the revolution with Great Britain. And so they were very distrusting of each other. They were very distrusting of the economic and political motives of the other states. One you know, really fun statistic that I think demonstrates this challenge, when the Continental Congress gathered in Philadelphia in 1775, more delegates had been to London than had been to Philadelphia. And London, of course, required an Atlantic crossing. So that, I think, just demonstrates where their focus had previously been. 
So when they had to come up with this new form of government, the focus was really on retaining most of the authority for the states because that's what they were comfortable with. And they did not want a strong central authority because they had just rebelled against that. And so they came up with this sort of hodgepodge system that reserved most authority for state governments and tried to come up with a little bit of federal authority for things like diplomacy, war making, and some issues of trade, recognizing that you cannot have 13 different foreign policies or 13 different war policies. And that worked okay through the actual fighting of the war when there was a common enemy and there was a very clear need to have funds and a central focus. The states sort of managed to get along and and do that okay. Now, People at the time already recognized the limitations because Congress was really struggling to raise funds. It didn't have the right to implement and enforce taxation. And so that was obviously a problem when you were trying to fight a war and pay for things. But as soon as the war came to an end, these problems only sort of magnified and exploded because there was no longer a common enemy. And instead, the states were all trying to figure out their own best interests, how to pay off their own debts, how to protect and preserve the rights of their citizens. And they were immediately squabbling with one another. And different factions within the states were squabbling because Eastern interests and Western interests were often not aligned. So very quickly, it became apparent that Congress, the Confederation Congress, had almost zero authority to deal with any of these problems, whether they be diplomatic military, defense, trade, or politics, because they simply just didn't have the authority. And any sort of reform that was required for the Articles of Confederation required unanimous consent. Now, the country wasn't as big then as it is now, but imagine trying to get unanimous consent for anything among the states these days. It was pretty much as hard back then as it was today. So by sort of the mid-1780s, most people, most certainly elites, most leaders, had come to the conclusion that something had to be done. It was only a matter of what needed to be done. And that was only a couple of years after the end of the war. So it did move fairly quickly. This inefficiency wasn't just a matter of, you know, we don't have the right to levy taxes. It also played a big deal in before the Articles in the Revolutionary War with the Continental Congress of not being able to actually get materiel to the troops in the field for the Continental Army, really affecting the way that they could prosecute the war. And I think that fact is really important for a couple of reasons. One, it demonstrates how important the alliance with France became to the American war cause because France brought money, supplies, troops, war material, and a navy, all things that the United States was lacking or in short supply. And it allowed the American forces to, in conjunction with the French forces, to actually win some battles, which was pretty huge. The second element, when Washington talked about the war effort, he was often incredibly frustrated by what he saw as Congress's inability to do what needed to be done and the state government's inability to do what needed to be done. His favorite phrase was, I cannot make bricks without straw. And so what he was saying to Congress is, I'm happy to fight a war, but I cannot pitch battles if I don't have ammunition. I cannot, you know, send my soldiers in certain places if they don't have shoes. And he wasn't exaggerating. There were times when the average infantry did not have the appropriate clothing to survive the winter, did not have the appropriate shoe wear, did not have the appropriate ammunition, 
or hardware to actually fight a battle. And that leads to the third piece, which is that a lot of the soldiers, especially the officer corps, who served in the war, saw these struggles firsthand. And they also traveled across the country. They went up and down the coast, which was something that most people at the time did not have that experience. And it gave them a very unique form of nationalism. They did see the country as one country as opposed to a confederation of 13 states. They saw the American people as a unique identity. And they saw the need for a strong federal government and a strong executive that could make decisive decisions and pursue policy with what they called energy. So to have an energetic president was really important to them because they saw what would happen if they didn't have those things. That's not to say that people who didn't fight in the war didn't also see how difficult it was. They did, but they just didn't have the same firsthand experience of the hardships of war without the financial or sort of the political support of Congress. And so the question that comes is, how do you have an executive, a president, be the head of the government who is empowered to be energetic, as you say, but not rule as if a king? Yeah, this is a this is the real conundrum because by the mid-1780s, as I said, there was a, a consensus that some sort of reform needed to be pursued. And there were a couple of attempts that gradually grew into the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. And keep in mind, this is only four years after the end of the revolution. So in the grand scheme of, you know, historic developments, four years is not a whole lot of time. And most of the people who were present at the Constitutional Convention had had some sort of role in the revolution. So they were very wary about recreating a monarchy. And yet, as we have discussed, they understood the need for an energetic, powerful executive. So most of the debates in the Constitutional Convention are centered around this key conundrum is how do you have the appropriate balance between federal authority and state authority? And how do you have the appropriate balance between congressional authority or legislative authority and presidential authority? What does that look like? What is the appropriate balance? How do you keep both in check? And there were a lot of different conflicting fears. The constitution and the sort of end product of the convention was very much a series of compromises that were built on top of one another to get the gradual support of enough state delegations that they could sign it and send it to the states for ratification. No one thought it was perfect. No one thought it was this, you know, gift sent from high above and carved into a stone tablet. They recognized that there were things that they frankly hadn't dealt with and didn't have the bandwidth or the will to tackle. They recognized that there were gonna be people who were displeased with the outcome. And when they weren't really sure about how to handle something, they often resorted to fairly vague language, especially around the presidency. And I think that that vague language is particularly important when we think about what that room looked like. So George Washington was there. He was voted the president of the convention on day one. He did not miss a single session. After the day's official discussions were over, he would socialize with the other delegates. They went to the theater, listened to music, drank tea had dinner with the other elite families in Pennsylvania. And at this point, he was probably the most famous American, if not one of two most famous Americans, the other being Benjamin Franklin. And so to put ourselves in their shoes, they were debating the limitations of authority for a position that 
they all knew if the Constitution was ratified, Washington was going to be the first president. There was zero doubt about that outcome. So it was pretty darn awkward to be discussing, you know, what happens if this person does something wrong when the first person holding office was sitting there staring at you. It's a very awkward situation. And they also had, you know, such tremendous trust in his ability to use power honestly and with care because he had already given up his commission once and already given up power once that when they were a little bit stumped, they kind of just decided to let him figure it out once he was in office. And that is really what he did. You know, I think it's really important that everyone looks at Article 2 and realizes how short it is, how little is written down about the day-to-day activities, responsibilities, and behavior of the president. And once you look at that, you start to think about all the different details and the fuzzy bits that he had to fill out once he was in office and really create the presidency from scratch. You reference in the book, Charles Coatsworth Pickney suggested the inclusion of the cabinet in Article 2, but how did it not make its way into the final version? So at the Constitutional Convention, there were several different proposals for different types of executive councils or cabinets suggested. Some were really intended to limit presidential authority. They were intended to be sort of like the councils of state in the various state governments and such that they sort of the president would have to get their advice and their buy-in before making a major decision. And the delegates rejected proposals like that because they didn't want to limit executive authority too much. Other proposals were sort of a combination of the president and the judiciary as a way to help the president figure out how to enforce laws and decide on the constitutionality of decisions. And they rejected that because they felt like that was an inappropriate role for the president to play. And as you mentioned, Pinckney presented an idea for a council that looked almost identical to the one that actually ended up emerging later in that the president could request advice from these advisors, but was not bound to follow that advice. So the president was really responsible and it was clear where the power lay, it was clear who was making decisions and that transparency and the responsibility would be preserved. And the delegates rejected this proposal, outright rejected it, because they felt that it would invite the sort of corruption and cronyism that they thought they saw in the British version. And they did not want to have that sort of temptation available for the president. We were really fortunate as a country to have George Washington be our first president because he seemed to be so very aware of the precedents he was setting in this very vaguely defined position. I always like to start off any discussion of his importance with an acknowledgement that he was by no means a, you know, a perfect human and he made plenty of mistakes and did plenty of cruel and harmful things in his life. And yet I do think he was the only person that could have held this position because He was the only one that had a national stature other than maybe Ben Franklin, but he was very, very old and didn't actually live to see, I think, the duration of Washington's first year in office. So Washington was the only person that had the national stature to to hold this national office that's supposed to represent all Americans. He was the only person that Americans trusted to hold this amount of authority because he had already proven himself very trustworthy once before. In fact, during the war, when there were particularly bad moments, Congress basically offered to give him dictatorial powers and he turned them down. So he had a proven track record that he was going to be a safe leader. 
And he was incredibly thoughtful about the way that he did try and build out the office. He knew every single decision he made was going to establish precedent for the people that followed. He knew the importance of restraint and not saying things and not doing things sometimes of establishing the office with a certain amount of prestige and, you know, the virtues that he felt were really important for a republic. And that is a unique combination. He tried really hard not to be a political person and not too many presidents have been able to fill the role in that way. It is amazing when you see people who argue about the Constitution nowadays kind of from that originalist position of saying that's not the way the founding fathers wanted it. And the question is, which founding father are you referring to? Because there was <laughs> such a diversity of opinion there. Yeah, I mean, that, that argument is so flawed for so many reasons. But the two main ones that I point to are the, the first, as you said, there was no agreement among the founding generation for almost anything. They disagreed about pretty much every clause of the Constitution. So when you say the founding fathers thought this, it's a laughable statement. The only thing they maybe did agree on was that the Constitution was imperfect and was incomplete. They knew how much government making had to go on once people were actually in office. So a great example, the executive departments were created by the first federal Congress. They are mentioned in the Constitution, but they are not created by the Constitution. And that is just one of many, many, many examples. And Washington was not afraid to step away from or disregard the original intent of the delegates from the convention once he was in office if they didn't suit him. He felt that the most important thing was to govern well, and he certainly tried to initially stick to what he believed were the delegates' expectations. But if they didn't work, he wasn't afraid to experiment, try new things, try and come up with the best way to lead and to govern. And so his presidency is a giant example of why original intent fails basically three months into office. Because that inefficiency of the Articles of Confederation Congress seemed to have just slid on nicely into the constitutional era because it took them a long time to get around to doing anything. Yeah, it did. You know, and, and, and I think that because they had so much to do and there was so much still that had to be created, but also they were all very aware of the implications of these decisions. The Confederation had already failed. And so most republics don't get a second chance and most governments don't get a second chance, but especially republics, which require the buy-in of the American people. So because they were already on, you know, their second leg here or their second life, they were so nervous that any misstep would prove fatal. And that sounds kind of hyperbolic coming from 2022, where we know, you know, the outcome, we know the country did survive and has made it all of these years. But at the time, they didn't have that certainty. And most of the governments they knew of were monarchies or aristocracies or oligarchies. And transition usually ended with death or civil war, and it was very bloody and violent. So they had good reason to be nervous. And this tension and this fear was quite widespread. And I think it does lead to slow decision-making and careful consideration because they were so worried about what might happen. A moment ago, you used the phrase, the founding generation, as opposed to the older fashioned founding fathers, because you do address the role women played in this process. And while they didn't have formal governmental access, they were very instrumental into the doing of politics in Philadelphia, New York, and D.C. 
They were. They created spaces which were semi-public, semi-private spaces where politicking could take place without it appear to be politicking. So under 18th century political culture norms, if women were present, it was not considered to be an official public event, which you know seems kind of silly to us, but nonetheless, that was sort of their construction of how things worked. So for example, on Friday evenings, Martha Washington hosted what she called drawing rooms. These were gatherings for men and women in her official drawing room. You know, conversation about things like theater and diplomacy and art took place. But of course, also politics were discussed. And because George Washington was not the official host of these events, Martha was the official host, he was present as a private citizen. Again, this is not sort of a distinction we would acknowledge, but they did. So at various moments, he could go up to senators or congressmen who were present because they regularly attended and say, you know, hey, this is obviously I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say, hey, but he would say things like, you know, this is what I feel about this particular bill. I think that this amendment is important. And often he got his way. He used these events to facilitate and shape the legislative agenda and to get what he wanted. And it wasn't considered to be improper interference in the legislative branch or improper politicking because he did so as a private citizen at this pseudo public private event. So women were essential in crafting spaces that helped shape the, you know, sort of behind the scenes negotiations that we know are so essential to the political process. When we talk about Washington and the way he's defining the presidency, he just didn't come up with all this approach on the fly. He had an experience in leadership in the Continental Army, and it turns out that the way he handled his advisors during the Revolutionary War was very influential on the way he would then later construct his cabinet. Absolutely. This is one of the things that I hope people most take away from my book because we so often treat Washington as either... Washington the general or Washington the president. And we separate them into two different buckets. And just like all humans, Washington was shaped and, you know, bolstered by his previous experiences. He drew on his previous knowledge and his leadership experience from the revolution all of the time, just like we all do today. And so during the war, he had developed a system of councils of war where he would invite his officers and his aides to come and discuss a various question. Now, sometimes that question was, should we retreat in the middle of a battle when things weren't going particularly well? Or sometimes the question was where winter quarters should be situated, which was a very important strategic choice to balance keeping the British at bay, but not you know so far that they could kind of run loose in the countryside. Or sometimes it was to build consensus among the officers for a decision and, of course, to obtain advice in a tricky decision process or a a tricky situation. And so he developed this system with these councils in which he would bring them together. He would usually send out a list of questions ahead of time, and that list of questions would then serve as the agenda. If the officers disagreed, which they often did, He would ask for written opinions because then he could study each position in great detail. He could think through the facts. He could make sure he heard from everyone, which was really important for maintaining esprit de corps and morale, especially among the officer corps. 
and he could make a decision slowly, which was his preference. And then, of course, if he was making you know, a controversial decision, he had evidence that the officers had supported it, or at least some of the officers. So this process worked really well for him. It helped him get through some of the worst moments of the New York campaign when he had to order retreat after retreat after retreat. It helped him achieve victory at the Battle of Trenton and Princeton when he sort of executed these brilliant escape maneuvers to get away from Cornwallis. And it helped him build loyalty and uh, fondness among the officers. And they truly, with a couple of exceptions, the troops and the officers adored Washington to the point that Congress actually often would refer to the army as Washington's army because they knew without him, it would fall apart. And so this structure of getting advice, not showing up with a decision made ahead of time, but genuinely seeking out input from different perspectives was something that Washington realized was so valuable. And he eventually turned towards it in the presidency as well. And that having the record of getting advice from other people to show if things go wrong, that this was a considered decision, kind of points out to what you talk about, kind of the honor culture of the time, and that you have to take great care in the way people view you, and having the receipts, as we say nowadays, is super important. It was, and this honor culture sometimes is hard for us to understand because it feels very sensitive or sort of touchy. But one way to think about it is that at the time, they didn't have social security numbers. They didn't have credit scores. They didn't have, you know, different ways to sort of track people. And so your reputation was how you were introduced to people. It was how you obtained credit if you wanted to buy land or if you needed to make a purchase for your farm. It was how you wanted to start a business. You needed to have a good reputation in order to have clients or to have people who purchase goods from your store. It was how you made friends or were accepted into school. It was how you met your spouse. So your reputation was quite literally your social, political, and economic currency. And if it was damaged, it was incredibly hard to fix it. And so it was very important for all of the officers, including Washington, that that reputation stayed intact. And so they were meticulous about maintaining records that showed either no wrongdoing or that they had good reason for their actions. Even beyond this, Washington, in one of his several flaws, he was very thin-skinned when it came to criticism. He was. He was incredibly touchy about it. And partly that was, I think, because he for all intents and purposes, really should be forgotten as a historical footnote. He was the third son of a middling plantation owner in Virginia. And had his father not died when he did, and then his older half-brothers died, we really wouldn't remember him as anyone because he wouldn't have become wealthy enough to marry someone like Martha Custis. He probably would have stayed in the army most of the time, meaning he wouldn't have been a revolutionary leader. And so, and because of his father's death, he did not have a traditional education. And so I think he was very sensitive about that. He was very worried about his lack of official knowledge. He was constantly reading things, trying to make sure he didn't embarrass himself to make sure he wasn't talking out of turn. And so I think he just was very, very thin skinned his entire life. And it indeed was one of his failings and sometimes led to his outbursts of temper, which didn't happen very often. But when they did, they were apparently quite a sight to behold. 
Well, Lindsay, I think there is so much more good stuff in this book that we need to talk about. I think we can get another episode out of this. Would you like to come back for the next time and talk more about The Cabinet? I would love to. Thank you so much. Dr. Lindsay M. Chervinsky is the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, which is now available in paperback from Belknap Press, an imprint of Harvard University Press. Come back next time as we will talk about the members of the first cabinet, especially the rivalry between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.